to St. Louis radio legend, controversial, outspoken. We're going to talk a number of topics with Bob Costas. Hello, Bob. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Uh, we're now joined by uh, Missouri State Representative from Springfield, Sarah Lamb. Coach Ken Carter. How you doing today, Coach? We're not always honored, but we're honored today to have one of the great legends of sports and certainly one of the greatest basketball players that ever lived with us. And that is the great Jerry West. His book is West by West, My Charm, Tormented Life. Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Jay Paterno, the author of Paternal Legacy, Enduring Lessons from the Life and Death of My Father. It's fall and it's football, and I'm I'm assuming you're excited, but I'm also assuming there are mixed emotions. Uh, no, I'm excited. You know, obviously I'd like to be coaching, but, you know, those things will... That'll come with, you know, in time. Cardinal President Bill DeWitt III has joined us. Bill, how are you this afternoon? Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Well, we welcome one of my favorite people in all of sports, former Cardinal General Manager and shortstop, Dal Maxville, to the show. Maxie, how are you? I am very good, Kevin. Real good, as a matter of fact. How about yourself? And we welcome the athletic director from the University of Oklahoma and the current sitting chairman of the Men's Basketball Committee, for the NCAA tournament, Joe Castiglione, our good friend. Joe, how are you today? Excellent, Kevin. And that bumper music got me fired up, and uh, and you're at Harpo's. <laughs> Holy cow. Blues owner Tom Stillman joins us. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on that fantastic announcement. Thanks very much. We're really excited about it. We've wanted to get an outdoor game for quite a while, and, and uh, now we've got one. All right, we've got Norm, uh, Norm Stewart, the, the Mizzou legend, is with us here. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us. It's always great to catch up with you. How are things today with you in Virginia? Oh, we're doing great, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. And John Sunbold, one of the greats in Mizzou basketball history, uh, was featured as part of the documentary, and John joins us now. Hi, John. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing great. Uh, how about yourself? And Tim Donahue, former NBA official, who uh, joins us now. He has written book, a book about his life in the NBA, Tim Don, he joins us now. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me. We go to the uh, phone line with Dan Deere visiting with us, the Hall of Famer, and, of course, uh, just ending his career at CBS but beginning his career as the one of the voices of Michigan football again. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hello, Kevin. How are you this afternoon? You hear that song? Of course, that's one of the songs from the soundtrack of the 2001 movie Remember the Titans, and one of the subjects, the main subject of that movie was Head coach Herman Boone from T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria. And Coach Boone joins us this afternoon. Hello, Coach Boone. How are you today? Hey, Kevin. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kevin Slayton, along with former Cincinnati Bengal guard Dave Lapham. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kevin Slayton, alongside J.C. Pearson. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening? Holy cow. A good Monday afternoon, St. Louis and all points north, east, south, and west. We welcome you in. Kevin Slayton with you in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, Kings Court. We're glad you're along for the ride uh, this afternoon. It'll be a fun day. We've got a lot uh, going on, including uh, Steve Petcher, the former 
U.S. men's national team player, uh, soccer that is, of course, to weigh in on what it, what it really means to play for your nation. Uh, as we've seen, it doesn't mean a whole lot, apparently, to people like Megan Rapinoe and a lot of her teammates on the U.S. women's national team, a team that lost yesterday to the Swedes, almost predictably, really, but uh, it went penalty kicks. And while I thought they would lose to the Swedes, I didn't think they would outplay the Swedes, and they did. They did. There's no questioning that, but they lost because they couldn't make penalty kicks. In fact, they missed three of them, one of which was missed by Megan Rapinoe herself. She kicked the ball completely over the goalpost, over the, over the crossbar. It was an embarrassingly pitiful attempt. But the thing that bothers me about her, and you can like her, dislike her, whatever it is you feel, and for whatever reasons you feel, everybody has that freedom in this country, or at least we thought we did until people like Megan Rapino tried to take it away from us. But nonetheless, here's, here's my take on her. She hates America. She's proven that, and she's proven it in this World Cup again. She's one of those players on this team, of course, most of them follow her lead, where she will refuse to put her hand over her heart when the national anthem is played. She does not sing the words to the national anthem. She has in the past knelt down during the playing of the national anthem. And it has been a pathetic display of anti-Americanism that she has displayed while playing for the national team, a team that has allowed her to become a very wealthy person in a country that has allowed her to become a very wealthy person. And then you've got the predictable Nancy Armour in the USA Today writing a column chastising anyone who disagrees with Megan Rapinoe. It's beautiful. This is how these liberals are. You dare express your opinion. All of a sudden, you're in a horrible minority of redneck Hoosiers, uh, deplorables, this, the Hillary Clinton deplorable group. That's where you belong. That's how they cover sports today, USA Today. Nancy Armour, Christine Brennan, two whack jobs that never should have been hired. Two, two women who push political agendas on a sports page. It's pretty embarrassing, really. And all we push here is Monster Energy Drink. We just want you to have a good drink of Monster Energy can, take a can of it, grab it, start your day with it, get a boost to push the focus that you'll have all day, and that punch of energy that will get you through the day. You'll be at your best if you have that Monster Energy Drink. And you can go out and pursue victory like the athletes do that Monster represents. Monster Energy Drink is a little bit different in the way they promote their product than the others. They're all about having fun. And they throw parties and they make the coolest events that they can think of into a reality. And everybody has a great time when they unleash the beast. And that's Monster Energy Drink. There is a sugar-free one. That's the one I drink. Sugar-free Monster Energy Drink. So make sure you grab it. Give it a shot. You won't believe how much better you'll feel. Lethargic? That's all it takes. Boom, you're ready to go. Our phone lines are always open, 636-348-4460, 636-348-4460. But in Rapino's case, it's just been bothersome uh, as far as I'm concerned and sad in the same in the same vein. She missed the, the, the penalty kick. Two other teammates missed penalty kicks. When you're kicking a penalty kick, it's pretty difficult to kick it completely over the goal. It really is. That's harder to do than it is to make a penalty kick. Any soccer player will tell you that. And yet she gagged it away at the biggest moment uh, of the season for this World Cup team. And this team is not a popular team. Now, the people like Nancy Armour in USA Today can tell us all day long that it is. 
But those of us who are followers of soccer and who are followers of the U.S. women's national team, and I have enjoyed this team in the past, this group and the previous group, not so much. And almost exclusively because of their attitudes toward the country and how ungrateful they are to be given a chance that most girls, most guys would love, would give the right arm to do, play for the national team. And yet there they stood, not singing, not hand over heart. The Vietnamese girls sing their national anthem proudly, not the United States. Couldn't be bothered. Kind of amazing, isn't it? How can that be? I don't quite understand it, but that, that's how they were, and then they lost, and they're done. Finito. It's all over for the U.S. women's national team. Home they come after losing on penalty kicks 5-4. to four. So the 5-4, to four, of course, is not the score of the game. People are uh, – imbecilic media people keep printing 5-4. to four. It makes you think it was a wide-open game. The game itself was nothing to nothing. <laughs> Hardly the game that you'd want to watch, and the, the, the penalty kick score makes it misleading. But nonetheless, that's how it all ends for the women's national team. Afterwards, uh, plenty of them had things to talk about. Megan Rapinoe, who after she missed her penalty kick, had that smirk on her face as though she thought it was a joke, and she laughed it off afterwards and then bragged about how successful she's been. This in the wake of a horribly painful loss for her teammates. Yeah, I thought we played really well. Um, I thought we played really well. I'm so happy for us that we went out like that. Um playing the way that we did and, you know, having a ton of joy on the ball. Um, I mean, this is like a sick joke for me personally. I'm just like, this is dark comedy. I missed a penalty. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Alyssa came up huge, though, kept us in it, obviously scoring one herself. Um, this is the the balance to the beautiful side of the game. I think it can be cruel and um, just not our day, but... Yeah, I, I still just feel really grateful and joyful. And, you know, I know it's the end and that's sad. But, um, you know, to know that this is really the only time I've been in, in one of these um, this early, um, you know, says so much about how much, how much success I've been able to have. and Shows how much success I've been able to have. She's not talking about any of her teammates other than say, yeah, I was really proud of the way we played. But this just shows you how much success I've had. I've had. I mean, it's pretty incredible when you think about it. It's all about me, me, me. The liberals would call that meism. That's how they talk now. A little meism going on. But the embarrassing part of it was obvious. It's not all about you. And she was asked about her greatest memory as a member of the U.S. Women's National Team. Now, they've won two World Cups in her time. She actually won the, uh, the, their version of the MVP of the World Cup last time around. And here's what she said. Is there a memory 
that stands out to you right now in this moment? Oh, um, I mean, probably equal pay chance um, after the final. Uh. Equal pay. Getting equal pay stands out to her more than any of the victories, any of the close games, any of the come-from-behind wins, any of the World Cup championships, the, the Olympic gold medal. The thing that stands out to her the most is that she got more money. That's her greatest memory that she takes away from a career. That's sad. That's really sad. It's not as sad as people like Nancy Armour of the USA Today who cannot help but write how much she hates men every time she puts finger to keypad. It is a man-hating exercise when it comes to the two female columnists for USA Today. It's really kind of disgusting. But it's the way they are, and that's a liberal newspaper with two liberal women, freak, freakishly liberal women. And sadly, that's all they can think of. But that's all Megan, uh, Megan Rapinoe could think of, is how much money she was able to make. Wow. It's a little surprising, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't, wouldn't you have any better memories than that? You would think so, but not her. She did not. Alex Morgan, their uh, star offensive player, who in the past few years has become a fan of Megan Rapinoe and pretty much is Megan Rapinoe Jr., was devastated after the loss. Yeah, just devastated. Um, feels like a bad dream. And I don't know, the team put everything out there tonight. I feel like we dominated, but it doesn't matter. Then the day we're going home and... It's the highs and lows of the sport of soccer. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it just doesn't feel great. No, I wouldn't think it would. But for Nancy Armour of the USA Today, the people delighting in Megan Rapinoe's misfortune forgot something, that Megan Rapinoe won long ago. She says they can write their triumphant emails rife with misspelling and misogyny because we're all stupid Hoosiers. And it won't change the fact she's a two-time World Cup champion and played in another final. Nobody denied that. Who denied that? See, this is how liberals are. They become so defensive because they know they're wrong. The right-wing media, she had to bring that in there. Oh, the right-wing media can spew more vitriol her way, and she'll still have her golden ball and golden boot on hers. <laughs> Nobody said that Megan Rapino wasn't a good soccer player. Nobody. Never heard anybody say that. I think it's just hilarious that someone like Nancy Armour has to go crazy over it. My God, I've got to defend Megan Rapinoe and these people that don't like her, these Neanderthals. She says that uh, those who reacted to Rapinoe's role, it was wholly predictable. It was the dream ending for the vocal but small minority that has had their knives out for Rapinoe and to a lesser extent the entire team for years now. Small minority? Vocal but small minority. I posted something yesterday on social media about Rapinoe and this U.S. women's soccer team and how much it's the only team I've ever rooted against that wore the American colors in any sport. And it's because of their lack of patriotism. And I got nothing but 100% supportive responses. And I got more responses than I've ever received on any posting I've ever made. 
So I don't think it's a small minority. And to not have one person disagree, that's almost impossible. This team engendered a lot of hatred. And a lot of disgust. And they all brought it on themselves. But Nancy Armour writes, when Rapino dared to protest racial injustice, she was branded wrongly as unpatriotic. Wrongly? She knelt down during the national anthem. She refused to put her hand over her heart during the national anthem. She didn't sing the national anthem. But somehow she's patriotic. But we're all wrong. Notice how Nancy Armour judges us all. We're wrong because we disagree with Nancy Armour. We were further incensed, she claims, when Rapino said she and her teammates were fighting for equality and marginalization. We didn't want to pay homage to a president credibly accused of sexual assault. How could she work this into a sports story? Megan Rapinoe and her teammates didn't want to pay homage to a president credibly accused of sexual assault. Credibly accused by whom? By you? Because he hasn't been credibly accused. And, and By the way, credibly means that there is evidence. There is no evidence of any such thing. And with a long track record, of, track record of bigotry, give me one instance of President Trump ever, ever having a long track record of bigotry. You can't even give me one incident. You can't give me one, I promise you. And God forbid Rapino and her teammates own their greatness. I've never heard anybody say the team wasn't a great team until the last few times that they've gone out and they haven't been. In fact, they were awful in this World Cup. Absolutely awful. They should have gone home in the group stage. They were beaten by Portugal except for a goalpost. She says it's a contradiction, these people who thump their chest and declare themselves to be real Americans while actively rooting against someone who so proudly wore the red, white, and blue. When did Rapino proudly wear the red, white, and blue? Can somebody tell me? Lindsay Horan is another teammate. She said she was proud of this team. Listen to some of the comments these women were making after they played probably the worst World Cup ever by an American female women's team. And they showed up and played a game against Sweden to a tie and lost on penalty kicks. And they're acting as though they went through the field on a scorched earth policy and demolished everybody. Well, first and foremost, I'm so proud of the team. Uh, you know, a lot went into this performance, and it was kind of changing gears and, and playing like us and, and playing our style and being confident and patient and all those things. We went out and did it. And, you know, I think we played beautiful football today. And we entertained, and we we created chances. We didn't score. Um, and this is part of the game. Penalties, uh, to be frank, they suck. <laughs> They're cruel. Uh, I've gone through too many in my my career, and and this is, you know, I'm proud of every player that stepped up to take a penalty today. You know, score or miss, it's it's courageous to go take a penalty. So I'm I'm very proud of my team. Any soccer player will tell you the easiest thing in the world is a penalty kick. So where does does courage come into play? It was courage to stand up there and take a penalty kick. It was? You're proud of the three girls who missed the penalty kick? I wouldn't be proud of anybody who missed a penalty kick. I'd feel for them, although not for Megan Rapinoe. I can't stomach her, especially with people like Nancy Armour backing her. That tells me all I need to know to validate everything I thought of Megan Rapinoe. As soon as Nancy Armour takes up the baton for her, you know right away that if you don't think much of Megan Rapinoe, you are on target. 
She goes on to write, those who hate Rapino like to think their opinion is shared by the entire country and are convinced without a shred of evidence that the women's team's popularity has plunged to the point that no one cares about them. No one's ever said that. This is not the most popular women's team. There's, there's all kinds of evidence that says that. My informal evidentiary ruling here, on, based on the posting on social media, tells me that. They're getting killed on social media everywhere around the country. But Nancy Armour says, without a shred of evidence, that the popularity of the team has plunged. No, there's nothing but evidence. You sound like a typical liberal, though. When all the evidence in the world slaps you upside the head, you claim there's none. That's what liberals do. That's what Nancy Armour does. She's a pathetic excuse for a sports writer at the USA Today, but the USA Today has had pathetic excuses as sports writers there for a long time. Christine Brennan, one of the leaders of that. As for his part, the coach of the U.S. women's team, Vlatko Andonovsky, was equally proud of a team that played horribly for four games. So proud of the team. So proud of the girls, I, I, uh, of the women on the, on the field and everybody outside. I mean, they, they uh, I know they were criticized or we were criticized for the way we played. And uh, I know we were criticized for different moments uh, through in the group stage. Uh, I think we came out today and showed, uh, showed, showed what we're all about, okay? Showed uh, the, the grit, the resilience, the fight, the bravery. Okay, showed everything that we could to win the game. And uh, unfortunately, soccer can be cruel sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, it can be cruel, but it's crueler usually to the team that doesn't show up and play hard. It's usually more cruel to the team who thinks that they're so superior to everybody else that they forget to play the games. It'll be more cruel to that team every single time. And that's what it was to your team. Yes, I thought from watching the game that the United States dominated Sweden. I was surprised that they did so. The Swedish goalkeeper won the game for Sweden. Spectacular save after spectacular save. The U.S. was barely tested in goal. That was a dominating performance. But if they had dominated their group stage like that, like they should have done, they wouldn't have had to play Sweden in the first knockout round. So that's where it all begins and ends. And why do you have a foreigner as the coach of the U.S. women's national team? The team that put the U.S. women's team on the map, the Brandy Chastains, the Mia Hams, those those women who played and won that first World Cup, is there not one one player among them that coaches? You couldn't bring one of them, one of the players who started this program, you couldn't bring one of them in as a coach? You bring some foreign dude in? For what reason? That's what the people ought to be bitching about. You brought in a foreigner, a male, a white guy. Good grief in heaven. How can you do that? But they did. And that alone makes it dangerous. So home they go. Losers of a World Cup, they thought they were going to win, but they thought mistakenly that it was just going to be given to them, that they just had to show up and it was going to be a coronation. And that's how they played for three games. And then they lost. And you can talk all you want. It was a millimeter. It was technology that showed that the penalty kick from the Swedish girl had barely crossed the goal line in the air while the U.S. goalkeeper valiantly tried to swat it out. She played tremendously. But it just didn't happen that way. And so technology gives Sweden the advantage. 
I don't like technology in these games. I don't like these replays. I don't like the VAR system in soccer. I think it's a disaster. It hurts the game. But it really doesn't matter what I think because people who run the sports industry today are hell-bent on ruining it in every sport. The college football realignment debacle of the past 72 hours tells you all you need to know about the destruction and the end of college football as we knew it. It will never be the same. The Pac-12 is no more. They only have four members remaining. The Big Ten now has 18 teams in it, the Big 18. The Big 12 is close behind. They probably have 14 or more. I'll have to add them up. You need a calculator before you can add them all up. The ACC is the same way. So we no longer have Oregon, Oregon State. We no longer have, uh, well, we do have UCLA, USC, but they'll, they'll be playing in the Big Ten. But we no longer have Missouri, Kansas. We no, we no longer had Texas A&M, Texas, but now they're going to be realigned again in the SEC with Texas moving in there. We no longer have Oklahoma, Nebraska. They played a non-conference game last year, but that was, that's been it in all of the years since Nebraska's gone to the Big Ten. We're going to get into a lot of that later on. But first we're going to take a quick break because we're going to have Steve Petra come on. He played for the men's national team. And I wanted to get his take on everything that we've been seeing. So we'll get Petra on and we'll be right back. in Kevin Slayton with you on this Monday afternoon and we welcome in a guy who played for the U.S. national team the men's side and a man who is instrumental in local St. Louis soccer even today after a spectacular career Steve Petra joins us good morning or good afternoon Petra I'm a little behind on the day yeah um <laughs> no hey thanks for having me on I appreciate it uh, I'm sure you watched the games as we all did uh, I'm a big fan of watching the World Cup games men or women uh, I did not root for this team. This is the first time in my life that I didn't root for an American team of any sort. I just, I just could not get in there with them. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, no. I mean, I watched every game. Uh, was, I watched every game. Um, you know, even the last game, I thought they played well. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, no, I, I've been enjoying all the games. Actually. Now, 
we had uh, – here, here's where I come from. I, I come from the side of the patriotism. I don't like seeing our national team standing there during the national anthem, no hands over their heart, No, they don't sing the anthem. Hell, the, the, the Vietnam team sang their anthem proudly. Uh, I'm sure the Iranian team would have sung theirs. I, I just don't understand this women's team and how they appear to at least from outwardly show us that they don't care about the country. D- does that am, – am I seeing something that you're not seeing? Because I, I, I've seen a lot on social media – and I usually don't follow it, but they're just getting destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I I think everybody when the national anthem is being played, I, I, I almost I would say almost all sports. Um, I think everybody, every each player handles it individually in regards to, you know, whether they sing or don't sing or whatever. You know, when I was playing, I, I don't, you know, I don't think I was paying that much attention to what everybody else was doing on my my team. But I would tend to guess that, you know, three-fourths of them were probably singing and a fourth of them were, you know, just being getting focused for the game, you know, probably listening to the song, and just, but just getting focused and maybe not doing the singing part. But you could tell that they were emotionally into, you know, into the anthem being played, you know, when I was playing. Right. And it's, uh, that's, that's caught on here. And of course, all of the social justice baloney. I, I wish the players would just play. I mean, I, I'm tired of all of the nonsense. You know, go play and let's get the games going. And this World Cup was a major disappointment for the U.S. team. How did you see them as, as from a player standpoint? Why, why did they go over there and not give their best effort, at least for the first three games? Of course, in the, in the knockout game, I thought they played great. They dominated the game, probably should have won. But they also should have gone home after the Portugal game. How 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 is it that that level of play for this team was so low when they went over there? You know, I I, if, I wish I could answer that because I'd I'd probably be the coach. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, I, I agree. The first three games they were pretty sluggish, um, and like you said, you know, Portugal doesn't hit the post. You know, they don't even play in that you know the round of sixteen, but. Um, they were sluggish. One of the one of the players that normally would have been playing there as their target player um, got hurt right before the World Cup, and she wasn't playing. So then we had to put you know more Alex Morgan in up top, which I don't I don't think is really her true position, um, which took away from some of the scoring that I think would have happened if if that player was there. And um, so you know then we I thought. You know, I thought Rodman played well. Uh, I thought Smith played well. Um, but just overall, they just seemed sluggish. I don't know if they came out just thinking that, you know, hey, we're you know we're going to walk through this bracket and then then let's go. Um, because they did turn it on in that last game and easily should have won that game if the goalkeeping wasn't as good as it was and we didn't hit the crossbar and you know, Jackson, what a disaster. You look at that goalkeeper for Sweden, and of course, I said earlier, she won the game for them. She made one spectacular save after another, and uh, that's a frustration of soccer. You know, sometimes that'll it'll kill your momentum. But like you said, this team was able to turn it on for one game. The, the problem, Petch, as I see it as we talk with Steve Petcher, they shouldn't have had to play Sweden in the first game of the knockout round. If they had taken care of their business, and I don't know if that's coaching, if that's leadership on the team, but I know that Carly Lloyd, and you probably heard her criticisms, she was very open in criticizing this team's leadership, and she was very vocal about the 
celebrating after the Portugal game with selfies on the field and jacking around and laughing. And I mean, they were they were an inch from going home. Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. And and I agree with you know some of the things she was saying after the game was over. Um, I know a lot of the players didn't, but you know whatever. Um, but she was pretty much right on uh, with what she was saying in regards to their performance and. You know, I mean, you know how this works, right? It all it all comes back to the, the head coach. Um, I don't necessarily believe in that the head coach is to blame all the time and when teams come out and they're sluggish because uh, they're professional players and they want to be treated like professional players. And, you know, it, it, I put the blame on the players. I just don't think they came out and played how they, they could play because they showed us how they could play in that fourth game and, if they would have come out even in one of those games and played as well as they played in against Sweden, you know, like you said, they would have been they would have finished first and they would have been playing a lower lower level team in that next round of sixteen. Yeah, and they would probably be moving on today as opposed to going home uh, after losing to Sweden. You knew that they didn't want Sweden all along. I was very surprised actually that they outplayed Sweden and dominated them like they did. We do tend to blame the coach when things like this happen. It's just the way we are in this country with sports. But my question about him is not whether or not he's to blame for this, but why do we go out of the country to get a foreigner to come in and coach the women's national team? Don't we have some of the women players from Mia Hamm's teams that can coach? I mean, aren't, aren't, don't we? I'm certain that one of those players went on to become a coach at some level. Yeah, they have. I mean, I, you know, I've been around events where Brandy Chastain was coaching teams and stuff like that, you know, but, you know, they, they have to want to be able to do that. We've had them in the past. You know, we had Jill Ellis, uh, one of the former players that coached for a while, and then she decided to go do something else. Um, you know, we've had other female foreign coaches uh, coaching that team as well. You know, and, of course, you know, um, Anthony DiCicco, you know, won the World Cup back in 99 you know, was coaching, but Blacko, I actually, blacko has been in the States for a long time. Um, I actually coached against him. He was coaching up in Kansas city. Uh, one of the youth clubs up in Kansas city when I was, um, coaching at, at Gallagher and we actually coached against each other. Um, and this was probably 20 years ago. So he's been in the States for a long time. A long time uh most i would say the majority of his life has been over here in the united states but you know now the next question is what's going to happen with him are they, are they going to let him go because he had a bad showing in the olympics and now they had a bad showing here you know as as we said earlier you know, the coach is usually the one that gets the blame for all this yeah and in th- with this team this specific team um it, it interests me that uh they sort of run themselves. And so I'm wondering how difficult it is to coach this team. Do they pay attention? I mean, I heard Alex Morgan say that after the Portugal game, when they were all in a circle and, um, uh, one of the, one of the players, um, Kelly O'Hara was yelling. I mean, she was exhorting them, you know, basically saying, Hey, knock it off. We, we should be going home here. And the coach was, of, of, Vlatko was saying something and she says, you know, it was so loud. I really couldn't hear. I was just focused on other things. I'm just wondering if they, if they think they're so far above the fray that they tune out any coach. Uh, well, you know what? Unless, unless I was there, I, I can't answer that question, but. Uh, I did hear all that afterwards. Uh, I heard all those comments that that's what, what happened. Um, you know, I, a lot of people are questioning, you know, his substitutions and 
either a lack of substitutions that he did throughout the throughout the World Cup, and he did. He's got some, you know, in my estimation, he's got some talented young players. Um, you know, you can always second guess coaches, and I one of the second guesses I would have is, you know, he's got some really good young players that he could have brought on in that Sweden game, uh, attacking players, and he he chose to bring Rapino on. Now, again, I can second guess because she's brought on for a number of th- number of reasons. One is her free kicks are normally her set plays are usually really good corner kicks, free kicks, and they were terrible when she came in. Terrible. I don't think she got a corner. She didn't get a corner kick past the near post at any time. And then at one time they brought her out almost at a half. He also going to take the free kick and she came out to take it, to put it in the box late in the game. And she didn't even get it to the top of the box. No, she and didn't then, get past. And then she didn't get past the first defender. No, and then the set, you know, the next reason that you bring her on because she's always been really good at it is penalty kicks, and her penalty kick, I think, as of right now, is still going in the <laughs> air somewhere. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it's landed, and and you know, and I know you're. I know you're not a fan of not a fan of hers, but. When she turned around, if I was one of those players at the halfway line that was watching the penalty kicks, and I don't think this has been talked about enough, but as a, as a former player and as a former captain of the national team, if a player of mine would have taken a penalty kick in that situation and turned around and started laughing and laughed all the way to the halfway line back to the group, I think I would have lost my mind. You know, you say it hasn't been talked about enough. Before you came on, that's exactly what I was talking about. I said she laughed. I said that smirk of hers found its way to her face after she just missed one of the biggest penalty kicks in World Cup history, and she thought it was funny. And she was laughing about it in the post-game interviews. And I, I'm with you. I might have dropped her if I was her teammate. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to put up with that at all. I mean, first of all, as you say, it's probably still in the air somewhere. It missed high and it missed wide. I don't know how a professional player, I don't know how a high school player can miss that badly on a penalty kick. It's it's got to be one of the easiest things in sports to do. Well, uh, as I always tell the kids that I coach, I, I've never missed it because I, penalty kicks aren't easy because there's a lot of pressure. But I've always tell the kids I've never missed a penalty kick in my life, and they always go, why? And I said, well, the coach never let me take one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but – you know, and players miss them. I, I get it. I mean, there's been famous players that have missed penalty kicks in certain, certain situations. But to turn around and do what she did is the part that I just don't understand. I yeah. really don't. And when you said that they put her in late for 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 good reasons, all the, all the reasons you mentioned, of course, that was her four years ago. It certainly hasn't been her uh, in recent years. And no one could have imagined she would be that bad. The, the direct kicks were – you're right, she came running out to take that one from midfield and, and basically tell the other girl, get out of my way, and I'm kicking it. And then it was like a, a scuff. I mean, it's, it's like when you hit a putt and you hit the ground behind the ball. Well, I, I do that often. So, yeah, well, that's easy um, to do. <laughs> because we're not, But we're not professional you know, golfers. I'll bet you the pros don't do it. <laughs> Right. No, no. But yeah, I, I don't know. I did. I, again, she was brought on for a number, a couple of reasons and, and didn't perform. And, you know, 
whatever. I, I, I mean, at the end of the day, the goalie kept them in the game from Sweden. You know, I mean, we hit the crossbar. She made a couple, two or three unbelievable saves. So we shouldn't even have gotten the penalty kicks. But, that, but then you even go back, like we talked about, the next, the step before that, we should have never even been playing Sweden in that round of 16. Exactly. We should have should have finished first, and then we got an easier game. Steve Petra is our guest, former captain of the U.S. men's national team and, of course, has been involved in soccer and coaching with the Lufus group forever. Petch, when you look at these uh, penalty kicks, I, I think you hear from people when you see this, nobody likes this as an end to a game. I don't think the players like it, coaches, fans, I don't like it. Uh, the, the answer always is, well, the players are so tired, you want to prevent injury. Wouldn't being, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't making a rule change, and I know they have increased to, from three to five, the subs, but why can't you have free substitutions once it goes to overtime? It, it seems to me that makes sense because after all, it's a team game, so your entire team is going to be tested if it goes overtime. Well, the free substitution, well, A, I would love to see them go back to golden goal. So as soon as somebody scores, the game's over. Um, I don't like the two 15-minute overtimes, even if somebody scores. In the I agree with that, too. Of, I, yeah, I agree uh, with sudden death. And, and, I, and I just think the excitement of the Golden Goal lends to, you know, more excitement for games and for the fans and everything else. Um, but I've always believed that what they should do is once you go into overtime, uh, I get the whole penalty kick thing, not not doing it. I'm I'm with you on that, too. But I always thought that they should – um, take everybody, a field player, whoever you end the game with, you have to take one player off. And now let's go, now field player wise, let's go 9v9. And then after like 10 minutes, you got to pull another player off and go 8v8 because that's going to open up space and there's a better chance that somebody's going to score that. And again, go to back to golden goal and somebody's going to score and the game's going to be over. Right. And, you know, that's, you know, what happens in soccer. I mean, I, I watched and, and, you know, those of us who might place a wager on a game or two, <clears throat> one thing I always notice from the 80th minute on to the end of, of, of extra time, there's usually a goal scored. And uh, a friend of mine, Mark Legrand, you know, Mark, we were talking about it one time and he said, there's two reasons for it. One, one team is desperate. They've got a score and the other, the other yep. team's tired. And, and, and so you're going to get a, you're going to get a counter or you're going to get a goal when somebody's just too tired to pursue somebody. But when they get into overtime, I, I still think you've got 23 players. So you've got 12 subs throughout the course of the game. They allow five. Well, that means you've, you've still got seven who, who will never get into the game. And to me, I'd rather see, you know, the last person on the roster playing than seeing penalty kicks. I, I just think there's too much, uh, emphasis since, since you very rarely see a penalty kick during the course of a game. To decide the big game like that on penalty kicks, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I like your idea, though. Like hockey does that now, with, of course, the three-on-three. Three. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I like now, that because you'll get an end to the game pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, it was, a, it was a tough one to go, I'll tell you that. Now, you've got daughters, and you've got daughters who play soccer, and you coach girls' teams a lot. Um, how do they look at this team? Do they look at it as – as some somebody to emulate, or has the luster kind of worn off on this particular women's team? I don't. I don't think it's worn off. To be honest with you, um, I don't. You know, I mean, when I'm, you know, I, I I don't know about college girls and all that that age group or whatever, but the younger girls still pick their players, um, you know, and and follow the team. I mean, 
all the kids that I coach, most of them were up at 4 a.m. watching the game. You know, they just, you know, and it's it might be more of a, you know, the USA thing than it is, you know, the individual players. Sure. It was a tough loss. Um, how do they go back to the drawing board? And, and you know, the other thing that bothers me about Rapino, they asked her what her greatest memory was. Now, you played an entire career. If I asked you what your greatest memory of, of your career was, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't say anything related to money. But that was her answer. Her, the, her greatest memory, this is a woman who's won at the highest levels, her greatest memory was getting equal pay, she claimed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, that. <laughs> let's just say this, the money I was making, no, I wouldn't say that. But, no, the greatest the greatest thing is to to have the USA on your shirt. I mean, that's. I think you could ask any former player, uh, you know, almost every former player, I guess. Um, and that's, that, that would be their answer. Just representing the United States. What did you think I mean, of that? I went on, I, 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 trust me, I went on strike three times with the national team just to try and get an extra 50 bucks a game. Um, but we never missed a game. Um, but, representing the United States is by far the biggest thing. Absolutely. And as far as the comparison between the men's and the women's, the women have had more success nationally, but obviously the men's game is more advanced, and so the other countries have had only about a 100-year head start. But um, the the men's soccer still brings in more revenue, does it not? Yes, yeah. If you talk to anybody, let's just – Let's just say if the men qualified for the World Cup and the women qualify for the World Cup, the men's the men's pool is just so much bigger. And as you know, it's it's due to TV and sponsors, sure, and all that type of stuff. I mean, the revenue that comes in is, is is different, no doubt. Now, you know, the men did agree to share, you know, the proceeds from the World Cup, their World Cup. I mean, basically, between the men's and women's program, they share the World Cup uh, earnings now. Um, which, you know, whatever, if that's what everybody decides to do, you know, more power to them. Um, but no, there's, there's definitely a, there's definitely a difference in, in the money that comes in for both events. Yeah. And I've always believed, uh, you know, and of course it's their choice. So I'm, I'm certainly not trying to put my opinion on the men's side, but I don't know why they would do that. You, 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 you bring in the most revenue. If you ran a company and you had two salespeople, one brought in a million dollars a year, another brought in a hundred thousand, you sure as hell wouldn't pay them the same. And and that's why I've, I've never understood that concept. I had the uh, basketball coach from SIU Carbondale on my show one time, the women's basketball coach. She ran the Women's College Coaches Association. She was screaming for equal pay. And I, I had called Jim Hart, who was the athletic director there at the time, the former Big Red quarterback. And I said, Jim, what's yeah. the difference in money? And he told me. And it was a, it was astounding. And he said, I can't yeah. believe it either. He said, I can't believe they complain about it either because there's no comparison. So when I had her on, I used that example to her about the two salesmen, and she says, "Well, no, I wouldn't pay him the same." I said, "Well, then, what? I think our discussion's over." <laughs> you know, I yeah. Mean. Now I now I have you know I have three daughters, so you know, hey, more money I can get them, the better. Absolutely, I believe me. I always understand what what point of view people are coming from as to why they their desire might be what it is. But if I that's what I don't understand about the men, I don't understand their point of view. Why they would why they would give away what they've earned, and people say, well, they're not very good. They don't win anything. Well, that doesn't matter. It matters what revenues are coming in. You know, I could be a schmuck salesman, but if I sell more than you do, I still win. Yeah, it's yeah. just just kind of. Yeah. I look at it as a capitalist, I, I guess. 
How's the how are the how are the teams doing with Lou Fuse? You guys are still dominating everything in the soccer market, aren't you? Well, first of all, I'm with St. Louis Scott Gallagher. Oh my God, I apologize. Why did I no confuse problem, that? No Why did I confuse the two? My bad. I don't know. Don't worry about it. I don't. I don't I'm friends with all those guys, so I'm fine with that. Uh, no, the club's had a really good year. We're we've actually got more kids in the club. We're over four thousand kids in the club now. Unbelievable. Um, which is going to be our biggest year ever. And uh, we won, I think, what four national championships this past summer. So everything's going, everything's going really well. Now, the Scott Gall. Let's see. I'm going to go back a ways and show you my age here. The Scott Gallagher Club. Then, of course, there was Norco. Is Norco still around? No, uh, yeah, uh, they're a lot smaller. Um, what What we did back in 2008 was we took Scott Gallagher, which was a boys only program. We took the Bush Soccer Club, which was the one I was running, which was boys and girls. And then we took Metro United, which was over in Collinsville, Illinois, which was boys and girls. We merged all three clubs together. Uh, I think at the time there was about 1,800 players in the club. And now, you know, in, in the, you know, since 2008, you know, 15 years, we're, we're now over 4,000. That's incredible. 4,000 players. That's boys and yeah. girls, right? Yes. Yep. And and you go, yep. what what age group do you start at? What What's the youngest group? Uh, the first official team that plays in our league is, is usually around U8. And then we go all the way up to 18, 19 years old before they go off to college. That's incredible. And you could probably sit here for another half hour and tell me all the players you've sent on to four-year colleges, couldn't you? Oh, I mean, thousands of players. Yeah. <laughs> the, money, the money that... The money that those kids have gotten is incredible, but, um, you know, and we've turned a lot, you know, a lot of them are playing pro now and stuff all over the world. And, you know, the Josh Sargent's and Tim Reams and all that stuff. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Where do we stand patch in uh, the country? Is St. Louis still considered the hotbed or have other people surpassed us or caught us? I don't think anybody has surpassed us. Um, we were having this conversation the other day, but, um, St. Louis still produces men's professional players, women's professional players. You know, we're still winning national championships on the on the youth level. Um, so now I I still say, you know, we we produce more players than anybody else does. You know, regarding Division One, Two, Three, NAIA, all that type of stuff, um, all those different levels. But uh, I still think this is this is the place for soccer and. And, you know, I was talking to Mike Sorber the other day and who was coached at the highest level. And, you know, he still thinks St. Louis is, you know, the best place in the country. Now, granted, other, you know, it's kind of like the Women's World Cup, right? Other countries, other clubs or other cities have gotten so much better, which is awesome, um, which has, you know, made us be better. But um, this is still the hotbed of soccer in, in the country. That's neat to hear. That's really neat to hear, in fact. And we've had a couple of players on that women's team um, who've, who've st- stood out as well. And so that's always been a neat uh, feather in the cap for St. Louis. We still continue to maintain that. Maybe Jerry, the good, the good thing that Jerry Yeagley's not still at Indiana stealing our players away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but his son Todd's there now. So <laughs> That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, but IU does, IU, this is where they come. They get a lot of players from the St. Louis area. Yeah, they do. They always have, and they've won national championships with those kids. 
It's, yep, inc- yep. it's incredible stuff. Hey, we won't keep you any longer, Petch. We appreciate the time, and thanks for your input because it was very informative coming from somebody who captained the men's national team. No problem, Kevin. Take care of yourself. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye. You bet. That's Steve Petcher. He uh, runs the Scott Gallagher Youth Club. I don't know why I confused it. Uh, there's all kinds of different youth clubs around, as he mentioned, but they've consolidated three of them. That's really cool. 4,000 kids playing club level soccer. That's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Pretty neat. So you hear what you heard what he said. Remember, I mentioned at the beginning of the show about Rapino's laughing it off after she blew the penalty kick. And I mean, blew it if you saw it. The patch is right. It's still in the air somewhere. But to turn around and start laughing and laugh all the way back to where your teammates were. And when he said he would have lost his mind, <laughs> it would not have been a pretty scene for Rapino if, if Steve Petcher were a female player and she came back doing that. That would not have gone well. And I don't think it went well with some of these players on this team. I got to believe that many of them resented that, but they're not going to say anything. You're never going to hear from them because they're never going to take her on, which blows me away. So home they go, and uh, I, I think that uh, Petch analyzed the coaching situation perfectly. Bad showing at the Olympics, bad showing at the World Cup. There's no chance for that coach to be retained. Whether it's his fault or not, we know how that works. It simply is. And it never changes. We know that too. It never changes. So we thank Petch for joining us here today in the uh, Monster Energy Drink stl-cars.com, Kings Court. Great interview, great time, great fun with him. Uh, a guy that really knows it and has experienced it as the captain of the U.S. men's team. That's uh, that's phenomenal stuff as well. I wish our men would, would have more success. That would really, really be cool for the game here in the United States. It would be fantastic. And I think they will at some point. I don't think, I don't think we have written the final chapter, certainly in the success level of the men's team. I wonder now what will happen to the, to the women's team. Cause this is a, a real setback. They thought they were going to win the third straight world cup and be historical. I mean, they would have been in uh, probably no one else would ever do it. It's, it's that difficult to do. I mean, you're talking about a 12 year period. Well, eight years, I guess, because from the first one, but eight years to keep the players together, keep at that top level. That's not easy. And they found out it wasn't. So away they go. In our second hour today, we're going to have an interview that I did with Dal Maxfield, the former Cardinal shortstop, and uh, won World Championships here, then went to the Oakland A's, won three World Championships there, then uh, was general manager of the Cardinals. Everywhere Maxie went, teams won. You like to have winners in your organization, and he certainly was one of them. One of which uh, pitched for the Cardinals for many years named by the name of Adam Wainwright. He pitched Saturday night again, or excuse me, Friday night, against the Rockies. The Rockies come into town. Wainwright was something like 11-1 and against them in his career, 12-1 and maybe. Rockies couldn't beat anybody, struggling. And they come in and they light him up. It's not a surprise, very predictable. And yet after the game, here comes Wainwright trying to convince us all that he's still really a good pitcher. He was throwing fastballs at 83 miles an hour. There's there's things to take away from every game positive, and today's game, my my, my stuff was actually good. My stuff is my my stuff's been good the last couple of times, and it's good. It was good today. I'm really looking forward to going on a, a nice run here where I put up some zeros. I'm I'm uh, I'm tired of doing interviews with y'all with the same old sad face. 
you know, but um, I'm keeping I'm keeping a, a positive outlook on it. I know my stuff is is so much better than it was earlier in the year, and uh, made a made a, a whole career out of getting people out with two outs, and so I know I can do it. I just have to, you know, it got me in London, it got me in the start after, it got me got me last week, got me this week. So um, I've just got to I've just got to make better pitches when when there's two outs. It's hard for me to understand that he just said the things he said, right? He just said his stuff was really good Friday night. Here's his line. Three innings pitched, nine hits, seven earned runs. If that's really good stuff, I don't know what to say. You don't have any stuff. And he labors to get people out. He walks people. He had two walks in those three innings in addition to the nine hits. So that's 11 base runners in three innings. You don't have really good stuff when that's the case, when those those numbers don't lie. And he continues to repeat this nonsense game after game after game. And then Ali Marmal, the Cardinals manager, refuses to confront him and challenge him and say, you're done. We're going to send you to the bullpen where you can pitch an inning in a game. Maybe you catch lightning in a bottle and get a win out of the bullpen. But we're bringing our kids up, especially in September, and they're going to get the starts. You're not. Here's Marmol trying to figure it out after the game Friday. You can read between the lines. He knows Wainwright's finished. Definitely had a lot of traffic. Um, three innings. It seemed like every ball in play was a hit. Uh, some hard, some soft. But a lot of it found uh, holes in grass and um, recorded nine outs, five of them through punch out. But just a lot of base hits. Just uh, not an ideal outing, but not a whole lot to take from that. No, there's not a whole lot to take from that is right. Now, that didn't sound like a guy who believes Wainwright can get anybody out the rest of the way. It didn't sound like a guy who believes Wainwright can win games for this team the rest of the way. Not that wins are that important anyway at this point, but certainly the effort to win is. And bringing the – you just traded for young pitchers. You traded established pitchers for young pitchers. You have people at AAA, maybe at AA, who you think – can fill future roles on this pitch, in this pitching rotation. Why aren't you bringing them up, giving them a chance? To me, the, the way to go would be to convince Wainwright to retire right now. And then you have a roster spot. You can bring a young pitcher up right away. And September 1st, when the call-ups come, every one of those starts that Wainwright takes is going to rob a kid of a chance. Retire. Do the, the decent thing for the team. I wonder if Wainwright, when he was a young pitcher, would have appreciated some aging veteran who can't get anybody out taking a starting spot away from him. My guess is he wouldn't have liked it. And the fact that he's so delusional, I understand how players get to the end of the line and it's very hard for them to admit they're finished. But that's why you have adults. You know, that's why you have managers. That's why you have ownership. That's why you have general managers to tell a player, guess what? We love what you've done. You've been a great Cardinal. You're done. We're going to have a day for you, but we're not going to throw this nonsense out there anymore. It's embarrassing you, us, the fans are pissed, as they should be. He went on later in, in this interview after the game, and he continued to refer to his stuff as so good, but he's a victim of soft hits. I had decent stuff. Uh, and I had, what, five strikeouts, three innings. I just have... I mean, just been plagued by uh, not getting the job done with two outs all year. 
just it's just killing me. I got I've got to just I've got to I've got to be better with two two outs and um you know I don't know what to do other than yeah, I think I'm trying too hard with two outs to to make a pitch and it's cost me a couple times maybe instead of just making a pitch, you know, I'm trying too hard to do it, but uh stuff wise okay, felt good. Um just got in some bad counts early, you know, two walks to Profar um first couple innings cost us two runs you know so um there's things i could could have definitely done better i also had five soft hits below 75 miles an hour or something that they got in there so you know didn't put myself in the best situations and then um had some had some bad luck out there too but you know i just gotta i've got to be better with two outs for, for the most part i can't stand a guy who says oh soft hits how about him 75 miles an hour or something like that. Who keeps track of how hard the ball was hit? I got news for Wainwright. I could probably find you 35 rockets that were hit right at people, and they were outs. They weren't hits. So this this constant whining about soft hits, he's been doing that for the last month. It really gets on your nerves as a fan. First of all, be a man, all right? You're getting rocked. Nine hits, seven earned runs, three innings, two walks. Ooh, I got five strikeouts. Whoop-de-frickin'-do, buddy. You're getting rocked. And the Cardinals need to grow a pair and make sure he understands it. Ali Marmol isn't sure what he should attribute Wainwright's latest disaster to. I'm not exactly sure what to attribute it to other than they made a decent amount of contact and a lot of them fell in for hits and doubles. Um, so it was a, not an ideal outing for, for Wayno, but we'll, we'll keep moving. We'll keep moving. That's what these guys keep saying. What, what does that even mean? It means he'll keep starting. Is it important to get Wainwright two wins so he can get his 200 and the Cardinals can cash in on another milestone? Uh, yeah, that's our goal. Our goal is to go out there and, and compete every night and get a win, regardless of who's on the mound. Uh, yes, we'd like to get him two more. That's what it's all about with this operation. He finally admitted it. That's what it's all about with Wainwright. Let's get him two more wins. No matter how embarrassing it is, no matter how much he's tainting his whatever legacy, if you want to call it that, he had as a Cardinal, this is embarrassing. And as I continue to maintain, you're costing young players opportunities. This team's desperate to find out and evaluate what their young pitching is or isn't. And they keep throwing this this old guy out there who can't get you and me out. Claims he has great stuff, though. Hey, look at me, man. This soft hits are getting me. That was like uh, when Leon Spinks got pounded by someone. And, you know, you just laughed and you said, what, did he get hit by 15 lucky punches? These aren't lucky hits. These are rockets in many cases. These guys were hitting balls off the wall against him. I don't know what soft hits he was talking about. And as I said, pitchers always get the benefit to, the, to benefit from hard-hit balls that are hit right at people. So that evens itself out. It was way overdue, but on Saturday afternoon, Don Coriel was inducted into the National Football League Hall of Fame. Of course, way too late for Don Coriel to enjoy it. He has passed long ago. But his daughter Mindy spoke on his behalf at the Hall of Fame on Saturday afternoon. Growing up, my dad was just my dad, or pop. The stories that you might have heard about him being so focused on football, 
that he'd forget that I was in the car driving me and the trash to San Diego State. Go Aztecs! Rather than dropping me off at the school bus stop and the trash at the bottom of our very, very long, steep driveway are all absolutely true. <laughs> I had heard that story before where she was a young girl. She got in the back seat of the car. He was to drop her off at school and drop the trash off at the end of the driveway when he left. He just kept going, went right past the end of the driveway over to San Diego State where he was the head football coach, and his daughter was still in the back seat. <laughs> and she verified it. She validated that story. At the very end of her speech, she thanked the San Diego Chargers because when Don Coriel was fired here, he moved on to the Chargers. And as the head coach of the Chargers, he was able to implement his Eric Coriel offense much more so than he had here. Uh, the Bidwell scenario here cost the Big Red many successful years. If you don't fire Don Coriel, as Dan Fouts has always said, since, since he got in the Hall of Fame, Jim Hart has not. He said, if the Cardinals don't fire Don Coriel, you're talking to Jim Hart instead of me. That's how effective the offense was, and it made quarterbacks. And, and Mindy Coriel thanked the Chargers, but not the Cardinals. Don't you wish you could be in that room listening to Big John, Pop, and the other guys telling their stories? Oh, my gosh. And the laughter. Lastly, our family would like to thank the Chargers and the Selectors and, of course, the Pro Football Hall of Fame for this exceptional honor. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Coriel has landed in Canton. I broke my promise. Her promise was that she wouldn't cry. <laughs> but she did. Big John she's talking about was John Madden, who claims that when the lights go out at the Hall of Fame and the last person has left the building, that the busts of all the Hall of Famers talk to each other. And that would be a great place to be to hear some wonderful, wonderful stories, wouldn't it? Wow. Just think about it. It would be sensational. Good afternoon, Dave. How are you? Kevin, I'm doing well. What a, what a phenomenal show, my friend. Hey, I, uh, I, I found out Saturday that Coriel was inducted. And it brought a tear to my eye because uh, when he was in St. Louis, I was a young lad and man was football fun. It was fun. Uh, we had some of the most fun watching that team, those teams play. They had three straight years of spectacular football. Uh, they had a four, nine and one team when he first took over. And then it was three straight years of double digit wins. And then the seven and seven debacle where the Cardinals refused to draft defensive help for him. And uh, the Cardinals then fired him, locked him out of his offices. Boy, Bidwell was a classy guy, wasn't he? Oh, what a – yeah, well, that, that, that's another story. But hopefully uh, – Kevin, it just – I mean, it's sad. Now that there's another Cardinal coach uh, that needs to get in the Hall of Fame, and hopefully he's the first assistant coach to get in there. But until Jim Hannafin gets in there, I don't want to hear – I don't want to see any other coaches in there until Jim Hannafin gets in there. Well, I'm fine with head coaches going in. I'm not sure yet if I if I agree with that because I don't know that assistant coaches deserve uh, the Hall of Fame. You, for instance, you go to baseball or basketball or hockey, no assistant coaches ever get in their Halls of Fame either. Um, well, I just 
Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just saying, Hannafin has been a head coach, and as a head coach, he wasn't that successful. Nothing against Jim Hannafin. Some guys are better defensive coordinators and offensive coordinators. In Jim Hannafin's case, he was a much better offensive line coach than anybody else and was much better as an offensive line coach than he was a head coach. So I, I'm not there yet on, on assistant coaches. I, I don't think you cheapen the hall by putting assistants in. You know, we could put a backup quarterback in, too, if he comes off the bench and has three or four great games and say he's the best backup ever, but he doesn't merit the Hall of Fame yet. Well, the, re- the reason I'm saying that, Kevin, is body of work with the Cardinals, with the Redskins, and with the uh, Rams says to me that he's a Hall of Famer. No, great. He, no, no doubt he was a great offensive line coach, perhaps the best. But – they don't put assistant coaches in the Hall of Fame. And, well, I'd love, I'd love to see him be the first one. Well, if they if they ever do, then he certainly should be one of the one of the first ones in there. But you you look at defensive coordinators, uh, Dick LeBeau from the Pittsburgh Steelers. I guarantee you'll get a huge argument in Pittsburgh that he should be in over Jim Hannafin or anybody else as an assistant. Long time defensive coordinator, the Steel Curtain. You you get guys who who coached these great defensive teams throughout the years as the defensive coordinators. And uh, you'll find a great argument for them. Um, it, it just is what it is. They're not going to put assistance in. I don't think they ever will. It's hard enough to get deserving players in. I mean, some of these selectors go out of their way to try not to put people in. Well, I was, I, Kevin, I was just going to bring that up. You know, I, I, I seen where Revis – from the Jets made it in, and Joe Klecko just made it in. So did Joe Klecko get better stats since he's been retired? Well, that happens. You know, look at look at how long it took Jackie Smith to get in. Jackie Smith should have been in immediately, first year of eligibility. He, he was a Hall of Fame tight end beyond reproach. But they didn't put him in because he didn't play on a Super Bowl winner, and he dropped the pass in the Super Bowl. I contend that that was Roger Staubach's poor pass more than anything else. But that's why it took Coriel so long. These selectors apparently only think you're good if you won a Super Bowl. That's the most asinine thing I've ever heard of in my life. Al Kaline, the great Detroit Tiger right fielder, didn't get to the World Series until 1968 in his entire career. And so they won the World Series that year. Are you telling me that Al Kaline wasn't a Hall of Fame player if he hadn't won the World Series? That's insane. Well, you know, like like, like politicians, sports writers aren't smart enough to do anything else. No, it's sports writers, it's broadcasters. They've got I don't know. They, they choose these selectors from a whole group of people. Jack Buck told me one time we were flying out to the Super Bowl and we happened to sit together, and he was a selector. And he told me that he tries to find reasons to put people in, but he said I don't understand these people who find reasons to keep people out. And I agree with him. Hey Kevin, off top of your then I'll let you get going. I, I'll look it up. But is Art did Art Monk ever get in the Hall of Fame? He did. Uh, Tory Holt obviously has not. Um, well, let, let me let me double check, but I'm pretty sure Art Monk did. Tory Holt, I don't think will get in because it's it's difficult um, to take two receivers uh, from the same team. Yes, Monk did get in. Um, it just seems to me that that's a hard thing. Now Swan and Stallworth both made it from the Steelers, but it was tough to get them both in. Will Will John Taylor ever make it from the Forty ers He was with Jerry Rice. I doubt it. Great. Great, great point. Uh, I, I just these these riders they just do a, as you always say, Kevin. And I love your line. There's so many bumper stickers that can be made up with your quotes, uh, but just do a little bit of homework. Let's stop putting a modern day player in and bypassing the player from the past because you know, they can't improve their stats. So just let's get them in the Hall of Fame. So uh, hey, about time Eric Coriel is in there because if it wasn't for him, 
you wouldn't have a lot of the uh, uh, stats and stuff you have in pro football, high school football, college football now, if not for Don Coriel. Well, when when coaches like Raymond Berry, I'm sorry, uh, Bill Walsh tell you that he learned all he knows from Don Coriel, um, sorry, Don Coriel belongs, uh, simply because his teams didn't get I mean, it's just laughable. His, well, his teams didn't get into the Super Bowl, or he didn't have great postseason numbers. So what? So what? It's the impression that the, you leave on the game. Or am I wrong, my friend? Well, it certainly should be. And a positive impression, which which he did. I mean, I mean you know, when, when you're not talking about an opinion, you're talking about his offense is seen today in almost every team in the league still. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, congratulations, Coach Coriel. Uh, like you said, Kevin, it brought a tear to probably your eye, too, many years after his death for him not to enjoy it, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Nope, I would agree with you. I was happy to see him get in, and it's about time. Sometimes it's okay, even if it's late, but it's not okay in this case because it was way too late to the point where he had passed away, and that pisses me off. Absolutely, my friend. Kevin, take care. Talk to you later, my friend. All right, Dave, thank you. We appreciate, yeah, we appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Yep. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just glad he got in. And so uh, even though it's way too late, way, way, way too late. All right, let's take a break. We're coming right back in the Monster Energy Drink stl-cars.com, King's Court. Grab yourself that Monster Energy drink. Grab this. Grab the sugar-free one. That's what I do. No sugar in that. You need energy, boy. It's about halfway through the day, and it's a Monday. Don't you want to pick me up? Monster Energy drink will do the trick for you. Give it a go. We're coming right back.
Welcome you back in. Kevin Slayton with you on this Monday afternoon right here in the Monster Energy Drink, stl-cars.com, King's Court. Grab yourself one of those Monster Energy Drinks. Get the sugar-free one. Get the regular one. It doesn't matter, but get one. Unleash the beast in you. Monster Energy Drink, the most badass energy drink on the planet. Get you through the day with that extra punch of energy, folks. You need Monster. Unleash that beast in you. Our good friends at Taco Bell want you to stop in at lunch. It is lunchtime right now, a little bit after lunchtime. You could have a later lunch. Get yourself something off that dollar crave menu or the $5 crave menu. Right now, that $5 crave menu is screaming at you to grab a double chalupa in a box with two tacos and a soft drink for 5 bucks, or a triple double crunch wrap in a box, two tacos, soft drink, 5 bucks. Maybe the dollar crave menu, double stuffed taco, a buck. Grande burritos, a buck. They have great breakfast, lunch, dinner, late night, and those dollar and $5 Crave menus are open the whole time. Get a grilled breakfast burrito with bacon bits for breakfast off that dollar Crave menu. Two different AM Crunch Wraps for breakfast, both both under $3. I support locally owned and operated businesses, so I do that with Taco Bell as well. Here are the locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations in our area. In Missouri, they're in Chesterfield Valley, Washington, St. Clair, Union, Jackson, Cape Girardeau. In Illinois, they're in Waterloo, Decatur, the state capital, Springfield, Carbondale, Salem, Jerseyville, Troy, DuCoin, and Columbia, Illinois. Those are all locally owned and operated Taco Bell locations. And folks, if you're in the market for a new car or SUV or truck, stl-cars.com is your stop. Go to the website, look at over 1,000 vehicles, and call or text Don at 314 626 3251 314-626-3251. Tell Don that we sent you. He will get that vehicle for you. Tell him the price you want to pay for it. If you can't find ones you like exactly to your liking, tell him. He'll find it for you. He has an extensive inventory all around the country. 314-626-3251. All right, I promise you Dell Maxfield today. Maxie, of course, the great Cardinal shortstop, later on the general manager of the Cardinals. Maxie um, 
had nothing but a touch for victory was Bob Gibson's personal shortstop. When Bob Gibson pitched, Maxie was in the lineup without question. And, of course, then he went to the Oakland A's at the end of his career and won three uh, World Series there. But Maxie is one of the great storytellers of all time. And without further ado, let's bring you the great Cardinal shortstop, Dal Maxville. Live from the Chuck's Boot Studios. You will respect my authority. You're in the Pabst Blue Ribbon, Gateway Buick GMC, Kings Court on 1380TalkSTL.com. We welcome you back into the Pass Blue Ribbon Gateway Buick GMC Kings Court. Kevin Slayton with you on 1380 AM and com on this rainy Tuesday. We're in the Chuck's Boot Studios, and we welcome to the show former world champion. Well, I guess you should never say former. World champion, Dal Maxville, formerly of the Cardinals, uh, not only on, on the field as their shortstop, but also as their general manager. Hi, Maxie. How are you? I'm fine, Kevin. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Once a world champ, always a world champ, right? Well, I think so. Um, I don't think they take that title away from anybody that's ever won it. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a nice-sounding term, by the way. Yes, it is. World champion Dal Maxwell. And uh, you've been around it a lot. Well, I uh, yeah, I was kind of lucky uh, in that uh, I was, as a player, I was involved in five uh, World Series, uh, three with the Cardinals and two with the Oakland A's, and then uh, got uh, fortunate again to uh, – be in the World Series a couple times uh, as general manager of the Cardinals in '85 and '87. So uh, I've uh, I've had a lot of good good fortune that way, and uh, really enjoyed uh, each and every one of them. And as a player for those two teams, you won what four? Uh, let's see, we won uh, four. Yes, uh, one in '64 and '67 with the Cardinals. Uh, got beat '68 by Detroit in the in seven games after we were up three games to one. I might right. add. And uh, then uh, in 72 and 74 with uh, the Oakland A's, uh, really a fine ball club out there for several years. And, uh, uh, yeah, so four out of the five uh, were winners, yes. That's pretty amazing. You were everybody's good luck charm, weren't you? Yeah. I, <laughs> as a matter of fact, when I went out to Oakland uh, and joined that ball club, uh, a couple of those the players over there, uh, Joe Rudy and a few people asked me, they said, hey, you're a good luck charm. You've been here before and won this thing a couple times. I said, yeah, I have. And I said, we'll probably do it here. I had no idea how good that <laughs> ball club was, though, when I got there. But, uh, yeah, they really, really had a fine ball club. And uh, we were able to to uh, win a couple World Series. Uh, and uh, really, really a lot of fun out there, too. I had a crazy owner by the name of Charlie Finley sure. who made things interesting on a daily basis. So <laughs> he kind of added to it uh, at World Series time particularly. That was probably the most colorful team in, in recent baseball history, those A's that, that won three in a row. Yeah, they. Uh, I, I tell you, Kevin, that they were, I guess the best word for it is nuts. They, uh, <laughs> they had a crazy bunch of guys that a lot of them liked to fight, and they liked to fight amongst themselves. Uh, I know Blue Moon Odom and Angel Manguel uh, fought at least uh, two times a week, it seemed like. <laughs> and and uh, uh, Raleigh Fingers and Blue Moon Odom got into it a couple different times, and they were the best of friends, but they'd get on each other. And uh, both of them were <laughs> had short fuses, I guess. And uh, 
But I, I never saw anything like it. I went over there and I thought, you know, you're all supposed to be friends and get along. But um, And they did. Once they played the national anthem, uh, uh, they acted like they all came out of the same womb. But So, uh, so much for team chemistry being important, right? <laughs> oh, hey, forget all that. Uh, what's important is uh, guys that can play ball. That's you, you right. Get, you get guys that can play ball, that's, that's the answer. And if they get along, oh, that's wonderful. We'll write about that and... The fans will say, what a, what a wonderful bunch of boys. They like each other, and they play good <laughs> together. But uh, forget all that crap. Just uh, just win. Just play ball and win. Wasn't Dick Williams the manager? Uh, Dick was the manager uh, in uh, 72 and 73 while I was there. And uh, then uh, he left, and uh, Alvin Dark came in and replaced him. And uh, uh, did a real, real good job. Obviously, Dick Williams is the best manager I ever saw. He uh, <clears throat> he was always on top of things and seemed like he was several innings ahead of uh, anybody we played against, any manager we played against, and uh, uh, and treated everybody uh, the same, whether you were a superstar or a raw rookie that just came up uh, the day before, treated everybody with uh, respect. I uh, I enjoyed playing for Dick an awful lot because of. Uh, I saw that in him, and, and you know that was at the end of my career. So I'd I'd been around uh, the game a little bit and saw how managers, uh, some managers operate, and uh, yeah, he he was just uh, outstanding in every way. And he was he was not one to uh, put up with any nonsense either. So if you had to get a bunch of guys fighting in the locker room, Dick Williams wasn't the guy that's going to pussyfoot around. No, no, no. And, and and we had a rule on the ball club: once the fight started. Uh, you didn't break it up. You know, you had to have a winner so nobody had hard feelings. And, uh, you know, sometimes we worried about that a little because Fingers was involved in a lot of those fights, and he was uh, a big cog in our uh, our machine at that point in time. He was the best relief pitcher in baseball. And so when him and Odom would get after each other, uh, we're all kind of dancing around in a circle watching what's going on and making sure he wasn't going to get hurt real bad. Odom, uh, we liked Odom, but we didn't care that much about you know, whether he got hurt or not. It was, it, uh, Raleigh Fingers was our bread and butter guy. That's amazing. You know, it's it's so funny because the media is so so into this chemistry thing. That you hear it all the time about the Cardinals. Now, oh, the team chemistry is just so wonderful. Well, did they win? That's that's the bottom line. Did you win the championship? And if you didn't, then it's not a successful season, I guess. Some organizations, though, probably don't feel that way. Yeah, it's uh, you know it, the team chemistry is is wonderful uh, when you win. Uh, you know that, that you you said it all when uh, you know you'd like to have the, the team chemistry and have everybody get along and it's all peaches and cream and all that and and win, baby. But uh, when you, when you don't win, uh, forget about that team chemistry. Let's find a way to get it done. Yeah, it can go south in a hurry. What are your favorite memories when World Series games come along, like the Royals against the uh, Mets tonight? Here here we've got a Midwestern city against the big New York team. Of course, you played for the Cardinals, and then you played for the A's, and you played against the Yankees in the World Series when you played for the Cardinals. Um, it, 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 and Boston, for that matter, the two big markets up east. It, it, is there any kind of that parochial feeling among the players, or is that just for the fans? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure uh, about the answer to that, but I, I do know that – uh, the people uh, that run baseball up in New York and the, and the uh, commissioner's office and all those folks, they hate it when, uh, you know, when two small market teams are in the, in the World Series. Like when we played Kansas City, they looked at it and go, oh, my goodness. Oh, they hated that for sure. Nobody on the planet is going to watch this. And, uh, you know, 
And the same thing, actually, in 87 when we played uh, Minnesota. They were not real happy with that because, you know, the, the markets were not the big market clubs. They would like for uh, the Yankees or the Mets uh, to be in the World Series uh, uh, every year against either the Dodgers uh, and the Angels or right. uh, the Cubs and the White Sox. Right. Chicago, L.A., and New York. That's, <laughs> that's what they really care about. And they don't mind when Boston's in there. And Boston's the same way. Yeah, great market up there. And But uh, we kind of enjoyed uh, having them be a little bit unhappy about that uh, every time we I got bet. in it because uh, we didn't care so much that we're a small market club. We were uh, – uh, we were a good ball club, and we wanted to have the chance to prove it to everybody. When you're going into a World Series, and you guys, when you played your first one against the Yankees in 64, and you've got a guy like Gibson at the head of your rotation, of course, they've got all the magical names, Whitey Ford, Mickey Mantle, I think Tony Kubek was still there, Alston Howard, Yogi was managing them. Uh, was that intimidating, or is, is Gibson's presence enough to say, we're not intimidated by anybody? Well, you know, Gibby was, uh, you know, in 64, he was still a pretty young guy. And, uh, you know, he, he was not the dominating guy of uh, the 67, 68, 69, 70s, you know, later on in his career. He was still an outstanding pitcher, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I don't know that he was as dominating at that point in time. But uh, uh, bottom line, yeah, I guess we were a little intimidated because of Maris, Mantle, Whitey Ford, as you said, and that whole bunch. But, uh uh, back, we had a pretty good uh, group of veterans on that team, pretty good leadership uh, there with Kenny Boyer and Bill White. Um, and Lou Brock was a youngster out in left field, of course. But Dick wrote, uh, you know, we, we just had a, a a lot of leadership there that uh, made it kind of easy to forget all about all the hoopla and everything of the World Series and the New York Yankees and all that. And after we after the games got started, of course, uh, you, you never gave any of that uh, any consideration anyhow after once they played the national anthem and some guy threw the first pitch well it's you know it's just another ball game and uh, it's not really just another ball game but that's that's the way you that's the mentality you uh, you have to have when you go out and play those games I guess uh, to be successful and uh, and we we uh, we beat them we uh, they were tough they were real tough uh, the Yankees were. Uh, took uh, all seven games and uh, uh, and Gibby pitched uh, outstanding and throughout the series and uh, did well and McCarver of course had a great great series hit a big home run uh, up in New York to I think it was Game Five yeah. if I'm not mistaken but tenth inning yeah yeah you know which uh, was a big boost for us and uh, my goodness that was 51 years ago good Jeez. lord I'm telling you where 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 does it go? You know, I think Cardinal fans will remember you as a shortstop because you played such great shortstop there for the 67 and 68 teams. And then uh, in 64, though, it was at second base. Didn't you catch the final out of that World Series? Yeah, I did. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Javier got hurt. He, he uh, hurt a hip and uh, wasn't 100%. And uh, uh, Johnny Keene came to me and said, uh, you played a lot of second base? And I said, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, well, what I'm asking is, uh, can you play second base? I said, oh, yeah. I said, yeah, I can play. Uh, I think up to that point in time, I'd probably played maybe three games total at second base, uh, scattered amongst a bunch of uh, games where I'd go in for an inning or two if they pinch hit for Javier, which they didn't do often but did occasionally. And 
so I'd go in and play the ninth inning at second base or whatever. But uh, but I had Red Red to help me. Red, uh, uh, he, I grabbed him the first thing and said, "Hey, I'm gonna be looking in the dugout for you. Don't be hiding. Uh, <laughs> make yourself take that hat off so I can see those red feathers of yours and uh, figure out what uh, exactly I'm supposed to do." And and uh, so it all it all worked out pretty well. We. Uh, we uh, struggled through it somehow, and yeah, I think the last uh, last out of the game, a nice big high pop up, and Dick Grote was standing by me there at second base. As the ball's coming down, he said, "Don't get hit in the head." <laughs> and uh, I, I look back on that now, and I am not so sure I appreciated that at the time. No, I but, bet you uh, did. It, it, uh, the, the ball stayed in my glove, and uh, and we. We were world champs, so uh, it was it was nice. It's it's a it's a play you probably made a thousand times in your career, but when it's going up in Game Seven of the World Series, are you thinking anything, or are you able to just concentrate on following it into your glove? I was trying, you know, I, we had a pretty good wind blowing uh, that fall throughout the series, whether it was here or up in New York, and so I, you know, I was a little leery about that when it first went up. I didn't know if the ball was going to blow to the second base side of the field and. Uh, and Dick might be out there and holler uh, holler me off since it might be blowing into him as opposed to away from me. But uh, it didn't uh, it didn't drift that much, so uh, I was able to corral it and uh, uh, celebration started. That's quite a feeling, isn't it? Catching the seventh game final out. Yeah, it, is. it was. It was. Uh, you know, I, I I didn't think a whole lot of it at the time, but. After it was all over with, I thought, "Wow, that was fun." That you know, I'd like to do that every year. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but uh, it, it didn't work quite. Wouldn't quite work out that way. No, but, but four times yeah. is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, we we had some fun with it, and uh, I I uh, and the, a bunch of the pictures uh, I caught the ball, and a bunch of the pictures on the mound with Gibson and and uh, McCarver jumping up and on him and everything, and guys coming around. I wasn't in any of the pictures because after I caught the ball, Al Barlake was the umpire, and he got out there and he says, hey, Dow, give me your hat. So I took my hat off, and I flipped it to him, and it landed on the ground. I reached down, grabbed the hat, handed it back to him, and now I run in there. By now, there's so many people around there, fans and ushers and everybody else. I wasn't anywhere in any of the pictures uh, on that celebration. kind of made me mad that I uh, – Those damn umpires. I told Barlick about it later on. I said, what would you stick your nose in things for? <laughs> but uh, he wanted a hat. So. As exciting as those four championships were, how disappointing was that 68 team? Because you guys had that World Series won and uh, just let it sort of slip away. Yeah, that, it, was, it was disappointing. Obviously, when you, when you lose uh, a World Series, uh, whether you're a player or general manager or whatever, it's uh, – uh, it's deflating, uh, you know, because you just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I, I know at the start of that World Series, when we were having our uh, team meetings going over the Tigers, um, the, the scouts came in and told us all about K-Line and Northrop and, uh, you know, everybody on their ball club, this starting pitching, etc. And um, all of a sudden, uh, somebody in the background says, hey, Red, can I say something? We turn around, it's Maris. Maris never said anything. He was the most quiet guy in the world, and he never said anything. And we all looked at him like, what in the hell is he going to talk about now? <laughs> and he, he said, you know, they're, they're talking a lot about Denny McLean. He won 31 games and all that. He said, the guy we got to worry about is that fat guy over there, that guy by the name of Lolich. 
said, he's the guy we got to worry about. Wow. And he, it turns out, that was very prophetic. Right. He, he was uh, right on because we just could not solve Mickey Lolich. He's, he just pitched uh, superb baseball against us for three games there. And, uh, and one of, in the fifth game up in Detroit, he's pitching. We're winning that game. Um, and uh, Mayo Smith let him hit for himself leading off the seventh inning, and we're ahead. By, I think the score was 5-2, to two, we're ahead. And he let him hit. <laughs> now figure that one out. That is so, bizarre. The fifth game of the World Series, if they lose it, it's over. And they let the starting pitcher hit when he was down uh, behind in the game. And what does he do? Gets a broken bat single into right field, starts a rally, and they score a bunch of runs, and we end up losing that ball game. And he shuts you down the rest of the way. And Well, he shut us down. Like he did the whole time, almost. We, uh, he, he just did everything, made pitch, uh, picture perfect pitches uh, on guys in key situations. I think the only guy on our ball club that had a real good series offensively was Lou, and of course he did that in every World Series. It seemed like he was yeah. uh, Mr. October before uh, Reggie Smith uh, picked up that name. But yeah, we could not. Uh, we, I, I saw Mickey at a banquet that winter. Uh, I don't know, it was Boston or New York, one of the two. And and I went over to him. I grabbed his left arm and I said, "I would like to break this off and take <laughs> it back and present it to the fans in St. Louis. And I don't care if I go to jail for it." He just he laughed like heck. And he was a good guy, really a good guy. But boy, what a pitcher he was in that series. He and was throughout his career. He was a good pitcher. Period. Yeah, he sure was, and that was a pretty good two-headed monster they had coming at you. But he dominated as opposed to Denny McLean. What are your favorite stories about the four you played, the four that you won, the five that you played in, and then the the two that you were GM in? Uh, well, obviously the 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 GM ones. Uh, they're kind of kind of uh, tough. We were. Uh, up three games to one against Kansas City, and we all know where that went with uh, the call at first base. Um, so, you know, I, I relive that game almost daily. Uh, and uh, I know everybody else does uh, uh, that was connected with it. I talked to Whitey, and I said, what's your favorite memory in 1985? He says, it isn't Deckinger. <laughs> uh, you know, he was the umpire at first base that made the call. And... Uh, you know, it's just uh, uh, one of those things. You, you, you're uh, devastated when you lose, but when you have a up three games to one and you, you end up losing, then bottom line, you turn around and uh, uh, in the in the next one against Minnesota, we were up three games to two, and um, they came back and uh, up in Minnesota, they won four games up there, and we won three here in St. Louis. So. Are you there, Kevin? Yeah, I'm here. And then, okay, you know, sorry. As, a, as a player, when you guys were playing, obviously your game's here and then the game's in, in uh, Oakland. What stands out to you in terms of a memory other than, of course, winning four times? I guess um, I guess the, the, the great job that – it almost always comes down to pitching. And the great job that people do, uh, not only as starters, but some of the guys in the pen, that it's so important that they, they come in and do the job and – I mentioned Raleigh Fingers earlier. Uh, he was instrumental in, in just about every game. He had a rubber arm. Uh, he'd just come in and get people out, and, and nobody, you never worried about uh, him giving up a, a big hit. It just seemed like he'd come in with men on first and third and one out, and, 
if he didn't strike the two guys out, he'd strike the first one out so he didn't hit a fly ball and uh, bring a run in. So. Uh, and, and were you on that team when he was faking like he was walking Johnny Bench intentionally in the World Series and then, no, and then threw no. the slider and caught the corner and struck him out? No. And Johnny Bench later on said, why me? Why <laughs> me? Why, why did you have to do that to me? Because now he says, everywhere I go, they don't talk about me being a – uh, a Hall of Fame catcher and hitting all the home runs and RBIs and doing that. They always ask me, how come you didn't swing at that pitch? You know? <laughs> oh, man, crazy. That is, crazy that, stuff. That, that is fun stuff. Well, it's, it's it's always fun, you know, reminiscing because I think those were fun times and those were fun teams. And, you know, I, I don't know how many guys, except Mickey Mantle and his gang, played for those Yankee teams, can say they won four world championships. But that, that's quite a quite a thing to have on your resume, Maxie. Well, I <clears throat> thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I I feel that way. I'm I'm very uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to be on those clubs and uh, contribute a little bit. And uh, um, yeah, Yogi Yogi and uh, and that bunch up there they they dominated the World Series for I don't know ten twelve years in a row there in the late forties and early fifties. And uh, every time every time I'd see Yogi, I saw him on a cruise here about ten twelve years ago. I know he just passed away here. Uh, couple of weeks ago but he was on a cruise uh, with a bunch of uh, fans from new york and i saw him and we talked to him a little bit and he said you got one of my rings i said i don't have one of your rings i said we we went head to head and we we beat you and uh, and you got enough rings anyhow said, right yeah but that was one i wanted i wanted that one as a as a manager of uh, the ball club but uh yeah we and you guys got him we got him. Yeah, we uh, we had uh, awful lot of great uh, Kenny Boyer hitting that grand slam home run in one game. To, we won the ball game four to three, so we didn't uh, we just obviously didn't do too much offensively. Uh, but enough after that, of course. But uh, what would you say to guys as they as they approach this World Series game one tonight? Because a lot of these guys are youngsters; they haven't been into this World Series. Some of the Royal players obviously have, but plenty of the Mets have not. Uh, is is there anything that a guy who's been through it all can can tell a team in terms of just trying to focus and play your game? No, that, you know, basically, once all the hoopla, once all the hoopla is over with, prior to the game, all the media there interviewing you, how do you feel about playing in the World Series? You've never been in one before. You're going to be nervous. Hell yeah, I'm going to be nervous. Yeah. Who isn't nervous playing in a World Series game? You know, you, you could play in twenty of them and you're still going to be right. nervous. Uh, <laughs> but but you get over it right away because. Uh, Hard as it is to believe it, I, I mentioned it earlier. It's uh, it's just another ball game, and you you know when they uh, when they hit it, you got to try to catch it, and when they throw it, you got to somehow try to put the bat on it and put it somewhere, and uh, that that pretty much sums up what you have to do throughout the season. And and uh, I know the Cardinals uh, with with the tough losses against the Cubs, particularly the two up in Chicago. I think they I read somewhere they struck out. 13 times the first game up there and 15 times yeah. the second game. You know, that's that's 28 Ks in two games, and you only get 54 outs. So that's over <laughs> half your outs were by the strikeout, you know. And in Wrigley Field, with the wind blowing out, I know if there's any second guessing amongst themselves when they sit around and talk about it, they're going to say, man, if we could have just put the ball in play half of those 28 times, who knows? We might have hit a 340-foot fly ball to left center that might have got blown yes, out sir. another 20 feet for a for a cheap home run, <clears throat> or 
if you put the ball in play, the other guy is allowed to make an error. You know, it's, um, it's why I think I, that's what they'll be second-guessing themselves about all winter is that they weren't able to put the ball in play up in Wrigley Field more often. And it's why I favor the Royals because their team makes contact more than any team in baseball. And I think, you know, in today's game where strikeouts are prevalent, if you've got a team that doesn't do it, you, like you said, you put it in play, and who knows what you – make them catch the ball, make them throw the ball. You never know, and everybody's, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> nervous, number one, and particularly – as you get to the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning, there's a little more pressure in uh, in those innings when uh, the game's really and truly on the line. And uh, you put the ball in play. I, I know in one of the games, uh, the third baseman for the Cubs, the outstanding young young kid that just such a great player. I can't think of his name right now, Kevin. But bottom line, he, he made an error on a relatively easy play, hit hitting his glove and it bounced out. I'm sitting there watching that, and I said to myself, "Uh oh." This this is going to come back to haunt somebody. Well, unfortunately, the Cardinals did not take advantage of that. But when you when you make a play like that, yep, uh, and and the other club lets you off the hook, it's almost like it's fated to be that way. And uh, unfortunately for the for the Redbirds, uh, it was that way this year. The Cubs, you got to take your hat off to them. They they hit all those home runs, a bunch of them up there, of course, but some of them uh, back here too, and they. They uh, just did a terrific job. Their young pitching pitched well. And, uh, and and they did take advantage when Colton Wong and Jaime Garcia made the errors. That's, that's that was right. the difference. You know, and in, usually in playoffs or World Series, when the other club makes an error, you better take advantage of it because it's, uh, uh, you know, you just you have to. I don't care when they, when they say, well, it's hard to do. I know it's hard to do, but. You got to do it somehow. You got to find a way, and uh, uh, and most of the time they did. You know the Cardinals did winning 100 ball games. I mean, what a great year! But um, for some reason, uh, in that short five-game series, they uh, struggled at the plate, and then of course their young pitchers uh, struggled a bit. I I believe in all three games that they lost. Uh, matter of fact, I'm sure of this. They were ahead in all three games. And uh, early, it might have been right. early, but they were still ahead. And, you know, once once the club gets ahead, if the pitching holds them down for the next two, three, four innings somehow, that, that Cardinal club usually found a way to add a couple more runs to have a little cushion. But uh, for whatever reasons, it just uh, didn't work out that way for them. And, and of course, losing... Uh, Martina, that didn't help at all. No, that, that I thought that was the biggest blow for them. The other yeah, injuries, that was, that was the, the other injuries, the players that came up played better, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But with yeah, Martinez, yeah. that was uh, that was the crippling blow. Maxie, if you could, the the wild, crazy A's World Championship teams, or the '67 Cardinals of Orlando Cepeda and Albertos, and all that fun, which which team more enjoyable? Oh, I, I think uh, probably the '67 team. Uh, because I, I, I was a, uh, more a part of that. I was the everyday shortstop, played 153 or four games or whatever, and I was in the lineup every night there, whereas out in Oakland I was at the end of my career and uh, was there just to uh, uh, cheer and back up, <laughs> uh, back up uh, the, uh, Dick Green at second base and Campanaris at short if they needed a rest or whatever. But, uh, yeah, and, and the, uh, uh, the chemistry – that we talked about before was definitely uh, on the '67 team. Uh, uh, that that ball club guys got on each other 
Uh, if you made a mistake, oh, boy, you were going to hear about it. But nobody ever uh, wanted to throw punches or <laughs> do anything crazy. <laughs> Whereas out in Oakland, it was... Uh, it was every day. Hold on. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, but <laughs> I'm, no. I'm serious, man. Those guys... <clears throat> and the thing about it is they like to fight. You know, <laughs> Billy North and uh, Reggie got into it one time in Detroit. And I thought, good Lord, here's our two... <laughs> Two guys, the biggest part of our offensive machine here, and these guys are beating the hell out of each other before the game. wasn't even after; it was before the game. And uh, well, somehow neither one of them got hurt, and we survived and <laughs> went on to win. Yeah, the rest uh, is history. Yeah, but the '67 team definitely. Uh, uh, Kevin was uh, more fun for the reasons I expressed. Well, Maxie, listen, it's always great to catch up with you and share some memories. Thanks a million for taking some time and visit with us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure being with you, Kevin. You, you take care. You bet, buddy. Thank you. That's Dale Maxville, former shortstop for the Cardinals, world champions, the A's world champions, and, of course, general manager of the Cardinals in two World Series. That was fun catching up with Maxie. It always is. What a great storyteller, though, isn't he? I mean, it doesn't get any better than him. So many times we've had him on the show through the years, and there's different stories and better stories all the time, but... Those uh, stories of the fight in A's were spectacular, weren't they? I mean, that was classic stuff. I really enjoyed hearing about those those teams. Because that team won three in a row, and they, they were famous for not getting along. I loved what he said about Dick Williams as a manager. I look at Dick Williams, Whitey Herzog, and Billy Martin as the three managers that I saw that I would put right interchangeably at the top. If you had any one of those three, uh, then you had a great manager at any time. It didn't matter. And you put them on different teams. Billy Martin won with the Rangers, won with the Twins, won with the Yankees. Dick Williams won with the Red Sox, won with the uh, Oakland A's. Whitey won with the Royals, won with the Cardinals. Those guys could manage anybody, and they would win no matter where they they ended up. Funny how that happens, isn't it? Guys who are winners win anywhere. doesn't matter what the thing is, what the deal is. They win. And those guys did it. And it's not like they were always surrounded by the greatest players either. They just they knew how to win. But those would be the three managers of my lifetime. Dick Williams, Whitey Herzog, Billy Martin. Those guys could manage. The fight nays. I love those stories from Maxie. Well, folks, that's going to wrap us up in today's edition of the Monster Energy Drink King's Court. Brought to you by the good folks at Monster Energy Drink and STL-Cars.com. We're back fighting the good fight again tomorrow. Uh at 7 o'clock in the morning right here on KevinSlaytonShow.com. And, of course, our sports show here will be under Monster Energy Drink King's Court on our website, KevinSlaytonShow.com, on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, Anchor, anywhere that you go for your fine podcast. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. So long, everybody. Uh-huh.